This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Last week I gave a message called The All-Important Word. And the reason I did is because I want to remind our body about what is center. So the Word of God comes in three forms. Many of you have heard me say this, but the Word of God in text is known as the Bible. The Word of God in person is known as Jesus Christ. And the Word of God in action is his work on the cross. And we as believers, when you ask us what do we believe, we believe those three expressions of the Word of God. We believe what the Word of God in text says about that Word of God in person and what that Word of God in person did on that cross and what that text says that that Word of God in person did on the cross and what it means to us. We stake our eternity right there. And as clear as that is when I say, you're like, yeah, absolutely. Well, in the body of Christ, there is a constant working of the devil to try and get us off-center, to to, con- to make Christianity something other than what I just said. And yet that is what it's always been, and that is what we as the body of Christ need to labor to see it built upon. And so last week we talked about the credibility, the integrity, the supernatural construction of the Word of God in text. The reason it's important to understand the significance, the supernatural Uh, aspects of the Bible itself is because when you undermine the Bible and its godness, you say, oh, it's just a book written by some good men. They said some good things. What you do is you undermine the godness of Jesus Christ. You see, that book points to one singular thing, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. So when you remove the godness of the book, you unwittingly remove the godness from Jesus Christ. It's been proven throughout history. That anytime there's a diminishment of the text, the diminishment of our Savior comes next. And when you diminish the Savior, you know what happens? You diminish his work on the cross. I'm here to tell you, you diminish the work of the cross and you don't have another means of salvation. If that's just a good man hanging on that tree, what are we gathering here for? That was God giving up everything to wash our feet so that we could live. This is a gift of grace that we have received. And we fight for the godness of the book because the godness of the book backs the godness of the man. And we fight for the godness of the man because the godness of the man is what undergirds his ability to save us, to cleanse us, to wash us, to redeem us, and to give us the life of God. So those are fighting points for us as the church of Jesus Christ. So this week, uh, we're going to, I mean, the, the title couldn't be better, the center of the center. We take this Bible and we set it before us And we all agree, yeah, that's what it's about right there. It's about that book. And yet I would say there's something in this book that is the center of the center. I mean, the the Bible is the center. I mean, that's, that's God's word given to us. But we need to get to the center of the center. What is this about? In the midst of this book, there's a lot of doctrines you could come up with. You could come up with a lot of theological statements. You could make statements about cherubim and the fact that they have four faces and they have four wings and they have hands and arms of a man and feet of a hind. Mm -hmm. And you could have whole teachings on this. 
And it would do no one any good, truly. I mean, how's that going to help their soul? And yet it would be true in that book. You see, there's something in that book that gives life. Just like a treasure map. You could look at a treasure map, and you could see a tree over here. You could see a mountain over here and a stream over here. And you could focus on those things, or you could look for the X that marks the spot. And say, hey, I want to know more about that X. We call it the cross. And we're like, I want to know more about that. You follow that map, though it has trees, though it has valleys and rivers and mountains, and they're all true. And they're important to create a context and to create an atmosphere of reality. But the whole point is the treasure. And if you have the map and miss the treasure, I'm not exactly sure if you're using it correctly. We as the body of Christ have been given a map to buried treasure. But that treasure is very, very important. I'm going to call it the center of the center. I almost said I'm going to call him the center of the center, but then I would have given too much away. (laughs) A study in the single most important thing ever. So if you've been around this church for any length of time, you've heard me talk on this many times. And like Paul was unashamed to repeat himself, I'm unashamed to repeat myself too. Because this is what it's all about. In the middle of the middle. It's a fascinating phrase that in the Greek you actually have a little phrase that is given to describe where Jesus Christ sits enthroned on high. He sits in the middle of the middle of the throne. Isn't that just sort of an odd statement? The throne obviously being the picture of authority, majesty, and power. So who's in the very middle of the middle? Uh, His name is Jesus. And I beheld and lo in the midst of the throne... And of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And so you see it. I'm drawing attention to it, making it big for you, or at least bold for you. In the midst of the throne is this lamb. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne, anamesos of the throne, That translates to the center of the center, the middle of the middle. In the midst of the middle is basically what it is. In the middle of the midst. So what we have is this throne, this reality of truth. This one who has given us the word of God. He has spoken to us. And in the middle of the middle of all that he gives us, there is one who sits. That lamb that was slain. It all centers around that. You take all the prophets and you say, what did you see, Moses? What did you see, Elijah? What did you see, Micah? What did you see, Jeremiah? What did you see? Well, it's hard to make out. It's a little blurry on this side of the covenants. But what I see is a lamb in the midst of a throne who seems slain. But yet he reigns on high. We have a key to stick into that great mystery. It's called the clearness, the clear word of prophecy in the New Testament. His name is Jesus Christ. And when we stick him into that mystery, we all in this room understand who that is and what they saw. They saw the center of the center. They saw what it was all about. They saw Jesus, the one who laid down his life to rescue us as a lamb of sacrifice on the Passover day of all times. Only to be resurrected on the third day, exalted to the right hand on high. Though he was slain, he reigns. We understand it. And yet it's a mystery hidden. In the center of the center. So Paul comes to the rather uh, unhealthy church of Corinth. And they have some problems. 
I would say, very similar problems to the ones we have today, uh, which is why it's, I don't know if you'd say it's encouraging to read the book of Corinthians, but it does put things into perspective. It's like it wasn't just that the early church had it all together. The early church had the exact same stuff we do. They had an enemy. They had an enemy that wanted to sneak in and bring disruption, bring disorder and division. Denominationalism, you know what? Most denominations support their main pet doctrines out of 1 Corinthians. And yet the whole book, ironically, is an indictment on denominations. That's what it is. Oh, some of you, you know, you, Apollos over here, Peter over here, Apollos, or I already said Apollos, uh, Paul over here. You know, what, what are you guys doing? You're missing the whole thing. In that context, Paul gives what I've always called the North Star. He says, okay, you all have a compass, right? Let's all fix our compass to the same thing. What is this word about? It's about one singular man and what that man did. If you miss that, all this other stuff is nonsense. For I determined not to know anything among you save that man and what that man did. Save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The epicenter. So epicenter is a word that is going to be associated with an earthquake. And I've talked about epicenters. I've talked about earthquakes many times over the years because it's, you just can't avoid it when you're talking about the gospel because you start reading the gospel and you're going to see rumblings in very critical moments. It's like an earthquake seems to be God's way of underlining something. It's like, hey, guys, don't miss this. I just shook the earth for a reason. And it's like putting an exclamation mark by it, highlighting it, making it maybe an extra-sized big font, and uh, emboldening it. Maybe adding a little italics just in case one of you missed it. It's like, do you see what just happened? That was important. Epicenter is a fascinating word. It comes from epa, which means upon, on top of, founded on, and kentron, which is the middle, the center, the midst. So when you build on the center, it's called the epicenter. So you know what I'm encouraging you to do today? I want you to build your life and found it in an epicenter. Now, if any of you know about earthquakes, you know about epicenters, that's the last place on earth you'd want to be. I mean, if you're just humanly wise, you would never build a house there. If you knew that that was the epicenter of an earthquake, no, 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 thank you. Uh, I'll look for real estate elsewhere. And yet what I'm going to exhort you to do is to build your life at the epicenter, the very place of greatest danger in this world. Isn't that a great thought? So what is epicenter? It's that which occupies a cardinal point, something situated on center in the position of greatest danger importance. So when you understand the word of God and you understand its landscape, God himself is going to bring us to a point of center. He's going to say, who's in the midst of the midst? What's in the center of the center? What is this all about? It's about that man who is not just a mere man. He is God in the flesh. His goings forth are from of old and everlasting. His father is in fact God. Biologically, he is the son of God. In him, the fullness of the deity dwells. Don't miss this guy. And then what he is going to do, what he is going to perform is everything for you. You stake your eternity there and you will find life. So that which occupies a cardinal point, something situated on center in the position of greatest importance. Epicenter. I just described the epicenter for you. So here's what most of us understand. The point on the earth's surface, vertically above the hypocenter of focus of an earthquake. The point where an earthquake or underground exploding originates. Uh, no, thank you, but that isn't a place for a house. 
That isn't where I would want to have a house, is it? The central point of something, typically a difficult or unpleasant situation and often the place of greatest damage. Now, if you've been properly introduced to Christianity, you know that this is how we live. God says, hey, I want you to pick up your cross. I want you to come to the epicenter. I want you to come and build your life right smack in the middle of the most dangerous place where trials and suffering are found in abundance. It's right square in his work on that cross. And if you don't know, it's the place of an earthquake. The epicenter of the word. So I like that. Uh, What is the middle of the middle? What is the, the place that we rest upon to say this is what all of this pertains to? Because if you don't have the epicenter figured out of the word of God, you're not going to rightly handle the word of God. Because there's so many distractions in the word of God that you could get off on. If you're a moralist, there's a lot of opportunities to get sucked into moralism as your focus of what the Word of God is. This is what you can't do. This is what you should do. Touch not, handle not, taste not. These things have an appearance of wisdom. But actually, guys, they're not the epicenter. They're not going to solve your problem. Minimalism. If you're into minimalism, there's a lot of great opportunities in the Bible to say, I need to not have anything. I need to give away everything. And you would be right with the text but miss the epicenter. If you're into intellectualism, oh, the Bible is just great bait for that. I mean, oh, the knowledge storehouse that this is and what you could know and understand and be distracted from the epicenter. There is an epicenter to the word of God. Jesus and him crucified. You could know all those other things and go to hell if you miss the epicenter. I know it sounds pretty dark and strong, doesn't it? Knowing about soteriology, knowing about eschatology does not save you. Knowing about morality, even theology, these do not save you. There is a man who saves you, and his name is Jesus Christ. And if you don't know that man, you do not have life. And if you don't know what that man did for you and stake your eternity on his working on your behalf, you do not have life. So though the vast terrain of Scripture is supernaturally given, it is extraordinary. If we miss the epicenter and we don't build there, we can miss the whole thing. So the epicenter of history. So the epicenter of the Word and the epicenter of history. A lot of people teach history and they they feel obligated to have their students know all about the world. They need to know everything about the world. And yet, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest history book in the world is God's history book. He says, this is the history I want you to know. He could have talked about a lot of things. He could have talked about the Ming dynasty in there, but he didn't. He shows the history of the seed, the history of the Messiah, so that you would see the center, the epicenter of all history. And what does it come to? All of the Old Testament builds and builds and builds to what? To Jesus. But not just that. What he is going to step forth and do. When he gives up his life and he crushes the head of the serpent, he triumphs over the grave, he rises victorious. Uh huh. Don't miss that. That's the epicenter, marked by earthquakes, by the way. Matthew 27, the scripture that Jake read before the service. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake. 
See that? The earth did quake. And the rocks rent. I mean, I mean, we've, some of you have been in an earthquake, but not many of you have been in an earthquake where rocks literally go, whoa, this is a pretty big moment. Talk about punctuation, underline, italics, bold, big font. God's saying, hey, you don't want to miss this. Something big is happening here. You may want to take a look. And the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Most of us don't focus on that one. Could you imagine a sermon just on that? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. Jesus died and tons of dead people were walking around Jerusalem. <laughs> and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. That whole thing is a really funny, the way it's worded, by the way, I don't know if you've ever heard me talk on it. But it says, many of the bodies of the saints which slept arose. That happened, sounds like when he died, right? And then and came out of the graves after his resurrection. Could you imagine being stuck in your grave for three days? It's like, uh, what's, what's going on here? And they went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Aunt Bertha? What are you doing here? I'm not sure. I mean, what? Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly saying, truly, this was the Son of God. You see, what is the response to the earthquake when God hallmarks, puts his signal on, underlines, italicizes, emboldens, and makes the font bigger? Truly. Okay, guys, this is God at work. This is God at work on my behalf, on your behalf. So the two great earthquakes of the gospel, the cross and the resurrection. Now, there's, there's more to it that I'm going to build on. Because if any of you have ever heard me teach on this, there's actually four earthquakes to the gospel. But I, I want you to focus here, because this is what Paul preaches. Paul is basically going to preach the two great earthquakes. That is not to diminish the other two. The other two are outflows of these two. If you don't have these two, you don't have the other two. They're meaningless to us. But these two are the center. The cross and the resurrection. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Well, there's another earthquake. Well, we have earthquakes everywhere. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Earthquake. Earthquake. God's like, hey guys, you don't want to miss this. This is big. This is big. I mean, God can do things without earthquakes. He does tons of things in the Bible without earthquakes. But for some reason, when he does these things, he rumbles things. He shakes things. One thing I want to notate for you and your soul, because when we hear about an earthquake, past tense, yeah, yeah, yeah. When you study scripture, it is meant to do something within you to hallmark, truly, this is the Son of God. What is that? Well, it's like an earthquake. We get shaken by the Holy Spirit. Something moves us. The posts of our house shake because God is near. The Spirit of God is working in our soul. And he's, it's meant to turn our gaze towards that cross to say, what do you think? Truly, this is the Son of God. And then brings us to the resurrection, shakes our soul, a soul quake. And we go, truly, he's the Son of God. Died on my behalf, resurrected just as he said. Whoa, the center right there, the center of the center. The secret to understanding the scriptures Live, breathe, study, reason, and interpret from this spot, the most dangerous place on earth. There's a certain pair of glasses that we need to wear to properly handle Scripture. 
And it is this. It is the glasses that maintain the two earthquakes, that take the center of the center and make sure that you never handle Scripture without recognizing that it points right there. So all of Scripture, all the Old Testament builds to it. All the New Testament flows out of it. Everything from when Jesus Christ ascends to the Father, sends forth His Holy Spirit, promises to return someday. Meanwhile, we have this season of persecution, trial, and suffering where the glory of God is being made evidenced in and through us, the church. All of that flows out of something, and it's the two earthquakes. God says, this matters, this matters, hold on to this. Paul says, I've determined to know nothing among you save these two earthquakes. What Christ did here and here, this matters. This is the center of it all. So we need to understand scripture through that lens. So stick on these glasses and everything starts to make sense. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. So we have this Jew from Ethiopia. And he seems to have resource. He's sitting in the wilderness, which is symbolic of those that don't see, that don't see clearly the promised land. It's the Jews that have a veil hanging over their gaze. They have the text of Scripture, but they don't know what the center of the center is. They don't see Jesus. So this man, this Ethiopian Jew, is sitting there, and Philip, who sees Jesus, is sent to him. It has something to do with your life, by the way. And so he goes to the one who cannot see. This man has the Scripture, and he's sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And the place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? See, it's interesting, but you may not be a Jewish scholar, you may not be a rabbi, you may not speak fluent ancient Hebrew, and yet you know what that scripture is talking about that was written 750 years before Christ. And it's strange, but you, even in your simple understanding, even a child in here could say, wait a minute, I know who that lamb is that was led to slaughter and did not open his mouth. I know who that is. I know you know. It's because you have a key. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth. He's going to give the key, guys. Brace yourselves. And beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. He didn't preach soteriology, eschatology, morality, minimalism, intellectualism. He taught Jesus. This has always been the message of the church. It is the man and what that man did. You want to understand Isaiah 53? Let me help you. You help him with a key. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now one way we could say this is that Paul is fearing that just as the serpent beguiled Eve, that we, the church, would be moved from the center. That we would lose sight of what it's all about. That we would forget who is in the midst of the midst of the throne. Who is in the middle of the middle of the throne. We would forget what this Bible is all about. 
Paul was concerned that the church would lose its first love, would lose its sight, its focus on Jesus Christ. Does he have a reasonable concern? I think so. Because this is precisely what the devil is up to. He wants to take our gaze off of the middle of the middle. And once you lose that, you are beguiled. Your mind becomes corrupted, though you have truth. The Pharisees had truth, guys. They were the conservatives of their age, and they crucified Christ. Being right doctrinally isn't what saves. It's knowing the man of salvation. He is who rescues us. Let your correctness lead you to Christ. So it says, the simplicity that is in Christ. Simplicity, in the Greek, would translate to mean singularity of focus. There is a singleness of focus that we are to have that the devil wants to take us off of. In Christ. What's your position? In Christ. In our position in Christ. Some of you are like, well, I didn't know what to say that. Uh, that's, that's a very common thing around here. Uh, we understand our position. You see, there's two ends in Scripture. One is that we need to be in Christ. Well, how do we do that? You see, we're in Adam by birth. And it says that Adam sinned and all sinned. We share in Adam's failure, basically. And we're like, hey, I'm 6,000 years after Adam, and I'm responsible for what he did? Yeah, you see, you were in him. And it's hard to explain how genetics work in a very simple way, but you were in him. You're a descendant of him. Therefore, when he went hunk into that fruit, you went hunk into that fruit. You share in his action. Six, well, it would be 4,000 years after Adam, Jesus, which was 2,000 years ago. We have Jesus. I mean, here we are way in the future. Well, the future from where he was, but that's, uh, don't, I'm going to confuse myself here. We're 2,000, af- 2,000 years after Christ. 2,000 years ago, Jesus did a work. Just as Adam did a work with that fruit, Jesus does a work of righteousness. One man does righteousness, and guess what? All who would believe in him exit Adam. They exit this man. They put it off, and they step into Christ. And as a result, by faith, we enter into Christ. Jesus is meant to be entered. That sounds strange, doesn't it? He calls himself the way. Where where are you going, Jesus? Going to the Father. Well, how am I supposed to get to the Father? You need to jump aboard. You see, where is he going? You need to believe in Jesus so you can go where he goes. He needs to take you somewhere. He needs to take you to the cross and deal with that old man. He needs to take you to the burial and put that man, old man out of sight. And then he needs to raise you to newness of life in Christ. And then he needs to bring you into heavenly places and have you sit in Christ Jesus. You see, the Christian life is meant to be lived not in Adam or what's called the flesh, our own power, our own ability, our own strength. It's supposed to live in Christ. So Jesus is meant to be entered like a door, like a strong tower, like clothing, like a house. He's the place we are to live and call home. Jesus, where do you set up shop? Where, where's your home? <clears throat> right at the epicenter. You see, where we come to is we come to the cross, and the door is, I always picture it being the size. Like, remember when he was pierced with the spear? It's like a little door. And I, some of you were like, oh, that's sort of gross. <laughs> hey. And so he says, enter in. We're like, that's a sort of a small opening. I know you need to humble yourself. Become his little child. Enter in. And when we enter in through his wounds, when we enter in through that doorway that he has opened up, we enter into life. But where does that life live out? The place of an earthquake. In a very rough place. I mean, crucifixion, a cross is a symbol of execution. 
It is, but to us, it's a symbol of life, abundant. See, it's all the glasses you wear. The place of the earthquake. You see, that place is the place of our rescue. That's why some of us wear crosses around our neck, crosses in various spots. Why? It's the place of our rescue. We, we cherish this. Most of us don't stick like a, uh, a form of torture around our neck, like some kind of uh, rack or uh, electric chair. You don't stick something like that around your neck. However, the cross is exactly that. It's a symbol of death, and yet to us, it's a place of rescue. So we cherish what the world would say is a terrible place. A place of suffering is actually the place of victory for us. So it's the place of our rescue. It's the place of our eternal living, the place of suffering the place of victory, the place of war, the place of peace, the place of agony, the the place of joy. All these things surround us. Though we live in hostile territory, we're at perfect peace. Though the world around us desires us dead, we have joy. Figure that one out. Just plant your life right squarely on Jesus Christ, and you'll find that this reality becomes yours. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was his temple in building, and thou wilt rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. You see, this very body of Christ is a symbol. We are called to be the body. Jesus built a temple. We are that temple. And so, just as we need to exit Adam and live in Christ, what that affords us and what that gives us opportunity to do is have the Holy Spirit or God himself live inside of us. So as Paul says, he talks about us being in Christ, and he talks about Christ being in us. And that's the great mystery of godliness, the mystery that was hidden for, has been hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed. We actually are God's chosen carrying device. And some of us, most of us, are not Jews. He's even grafted in the Gentiles, the pagans. The filthy, the dogs. He has cleansed us and washed us by his blood and made us fit to be carriers of his divine nature. It's just shocking. Are you willing to call this dangerous place home? So many of us in here, maybe in that struggle season of our life where you know that you're supposed to live in Christ, but Christ is a place of danger. And if you stick your neck up for Jesus... Uh, in this culture, if you speak out for Jesus, you ever had those moments where you're like, someone should speak, someone should say something. I mean, come on, guys. And then God says, what about you? Well, I'm not the speaking type. I mean, leave that to someone else that does the speaking. Are you sure that you're not the one that's supposed to speak? You see, most of us would rather live over here and give esteem to the Christ life. It's like, praise Jesus for what he did. You did a great job on that cross, but we don't want to identify in it. We don't want to share in its sufferings. I mean, hey, Jesus, I know you went to that cross and praise you for it, but I don't really want to enter into that place of living. No offense, but hey, I got a life to think of here. I have comforts. I mean, I have one go at this thing called life, and hey, there's a lot of comforts and pleasures to be had. If you don't give up this life, you die. You have to die now. Give it up and enter into Jesus so you can live. That's the secret to Christianity. So... I guess here's my question to you. Are you willing to call this dangerous place home? I want each one of you to freshly evaluate that. I know some of you in here have made that decision maybe multiple times in your life. Yep, I know it is dangerous. I know it comes with suffering. I know it comes with trials of many kinds. I know it comes with persecution. Anyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Okay, I know that. And I say yes. I choose Christ. 
I choose Christ. I have no life outside of him. I am willing to live where he lives, go where he goes, and do what he would have me do. Are you willing to sell all other property and move here to this place? I mean, all your other good spots, good land, you know, you have a nice seashore property over here. You have a mountain view property over here. Are you willing to give up all that stuff that you have in Adam and identify with Christ? I mean, it's a, it's a hill on the outside, sort of like the garbage dump part of Jerusalem. And in fact, it's called the place of the skull. And many people have uh, suspected that it's a place where a lot of dead heads were, a lot of skulls, which is a pretty incredible thought to think about dead heads. What did he do at that place? He crushed the head of the devil. It's a place of a dead head. And yet, it's not an attractive spot, by the way. If you were thinking of a spot that had a whole bunch of skulls buried underneath, it is sort of like a nuclear reactor plant used to be. It's like, yeah, honey, why don't we build over here? I don't want that as my property. Are you willing to sell all your other property to gain this property? Are you willing to throw away everything that can't coexist in this divine and heavenly home? Because when you enter into a place of light, did you know that darkness can't remain? All that is not of light has to go. So are you willing to give up all your life and enter into a place of light? Are you willing to move into a place where the sound of war will be the background score to your life? Many of you understand this intimately. You have chosen to follow Jesus, and you recognize that you have now gained access to greater challenges, greater opportunities for growth in Jesus Christ. It's not an easy life here. It's a harder way. That's why it's called the narrow way. And the word narrow means a way of difficulty and compression. Why would anyone choose that? There's a Broadway over here, guys. Why don't you choose the Broadway? The narrow way? Who would do that? We do. Why? Have you ever seen Jesus? Do you know how beautiful he is? Do you recognize that he gave everything for us and the least we could do is give up our life for him? Are you willing to choose the ignominy that is associated with this location? For those of this earth call those who dwell here fools, idiots, the offscouring of the world, refuse, garbage, ignorant, small-minded, intellectually inferior. I remember uh, the worst thing you could ever do if you write books is read your reviews. Okay, let that be known to any of you. Okay? So I don't read reviews, but then for whatever reason, I decided, this is quite a few years ago, I, I learned my lesson. I went onto Amazon, and someone, someone decided to say some stuff. And I, I, I was a little offended by it. They called me small-minded. All his books say the exact same thing. He has no original thinking. All he says is, surrender your life to Jesus. Surrender your life to Jesus. And I'm thinking, hey, I have a brain. <laughs> so I was writing a foreword for my next book at the time, and I waxed eloquent in that thing. And the, uh, the editor got back with me, and he said, I'm not sure who you wrote this for, Eric, uh, but I needed a dictionary next to me to read it. And I said, yep, that's right. <laughs> you see, I have to be willing. I have to be willing to be the fool, the idiot, the off-scouring of the world, the refuse, the garbage, the ignorant, small-minded, the intellectually inferior. Do I accept that? Now, we as the children of God are not actually that. In heaven, we're deemed completely different. But am I willing to be seen that way and accept that as a badge, as my cologne that I put on? It's offensive to this world. I mean, not many of you wake up in the morning and spray a smell that you know will be offensive to people around you. 
And yet as Christians, we wake up in the morning, step into Christ, and go, bathe me in it. I'm willing. That's hard. Yeah, it's hard for Adam. It's hard for your first man. But the new man, as you feed it, as you cultivate, as you exercise it, smiles at such thoughts. Are you willing to fall in love with this place? Cherish it as your eternal dwelling and covenant to never leave, whether in sickness or in health, whether living in plenty or in want, whether amidst bomb blasts or the cooing of turtle doves. It makes no difference. Whatever comes my way, whatever my lot is, I covenant. My statement is, I do. I do. This is the marriage of marriages. Earthly marriage is just a foretaste, just a foreshadow of what we are entering into with Christ. I will never leave you. What does he say to us? I'll never leave you. Well, I don't want to leave you. Big kiss. You see, there's a love relationship between us. Are you willing to make the epicenter of the most dangerous earthquake in universal history your dwelling place? That's a good question. There is only one house Out of all the real estate on earth, this is actually the loan option. You're going around with your spouse and you're looking for that perfect place. And your realtor says, but there is room in the house. Yeah, but that's the house that's built like at the earthquake. Yeah, but that's the only spot that's truly available. What you're saying to me, you want life, you want Jesus you want his way? You want to see this world change for him? You want to be useful to him? There's only really one way to do that, and that's right here. But you have to give up everything to enter in there. By man came death, in Adam all die. See, don't stay in Adam, guys. Get out of Adam. By man came also the resurrection of the dead. In Christ shall all be made alive. You choose. In Adam? In Christ. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man. You put off the old man, didn't you? You got, you got rid of that. With his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Come to the center of the center and live. So, I don't know what is distracting you right now. Some of you may have arrived with some noise going in your life, some emotional distraction, some practical distraction, some psychological distraction, relational distraction, financial distraction. I don't want you to be beguiled and duped. I don't want you to be taken off the center of the center. There is a solution for every possible circumstance that you're facing right now, and his name is Jesus and what he did on that cross. And I know that might sound like a pat answer. If you came to me, it's like, my situation's very complex. And the solution is very simple. Jesus and what he did for you on that cross. That is the solution for even the most tangled of webs. Every circumstance you face, the answer is found in him. As Christians, when we try and give answers outside of Christ, we are misleading a generation away from the middle of the middle, the center of the center that which is in the midst of the throne. The difference between a visit and abiding. So many of us, see if I can speak the language of our modern Christian culture. We would like to visit Jesus. We can come to his house and when we hear of threats outside, we quickly sneak out the back door. 
It's like, oh, it's, it's tough. Yeah, what Christianity is facing. We don't want to associate with it. But there's a difference. The word that we are given in the New Testament isn't that we are to come visit Christ every now and then, hang out with him. We are to abide with Christ. A visit is a stopover, a short-term excursion, a stay that is not intended to be permanent. Abiding, uh, moving in, remaining, deciding that this is the spot, staying no matter the challenges, adapting to whatever the house demands and cherishing and caring for the place as if it is your very own. If you're just stopping in, you don't care for it the same way. Have you ever noticed that? You dream when you're in your own house. You look around, you look at the wall and say, we need something right there. If it's just a visit, you don't think like that. God wants you to settle in. He wants you to dream with him. There's a lost and dying world out there. God, and you have the power here. Look at what we have in this house. We could take this into the world. You go, I like how you're thinking. We could like go into all the world and make disciples. You go, oh, that's a great idea. Dream with him. You see, when you come for an abiding relationship, you share in his purpose. You see, this house has a purpose. And you need to buy into that. Graft into that. This isn't just a stopover for the day, a little afternoon tea. This is life now. This is where you live. So here's a picture of a bud graft. That's what it's called. So you see that the, uh, the rootstock, which is Christ, he is the, the vine and we are the branches. So that's us, that little uh, baby-like thing over there. Uh, it's a little bud. And what happens is the, the, the rootstock is opened up. And a door is opened. And it's inner sap, or what we would call the life of it, to, at the cross, it was the blood of Christ, is made available. And so when that bud chooses to come in, by the way, this is not a temporary stopover, guys, but now there's a rope that will tie around it and bind it to it. And what's going to happen? That which is in that vine is going to enter that little bud, and that little bud is going to start showing the life of that vine. Uh-huh. Christianity. The third earthquake of the gospel. The cross, the resurrection, the indwelling. Pretty amazing uh, that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. You see, Paul preached Jesus and him crucified. And so some of us are like, hey, what about the resurrection? What about the uh, ascension? What about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? What about his, his second coming? Well, they're not to be diminished at all. However, they only have context when you understand that he gained the victory for us. That's where he purchased it. That's where the veil was rent to. That's why we have access to these things. It was done and accomplished. He said, it is finished. Now we're seeing the outflow of that. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken. I like it, guys. The place was shaken. They were all assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. God has come to abide in us. Now think about this. You are called not to make a temporary stopover in Jesus Christ. It's like, oh, it's good spending the afternoon with you. I'm out of here. We're supposed to abide and allow that rope to tie around us and knit us together with his life. But just think about this. Now Jesus, because of that, because we abide in him, he wants to abide in us. It's like, I'm, I'm coming in. Not for a temporary stopover, but to stay. I'd like to live in that body of yours. This place? That's my chosen home. You chose me? I choose you. I want to live right there in that body. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he, is, he, he it is that loveth me. And he that loves me 
shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Jesus answered and said unto them, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him and will come unto him and make our abode with him. But first we must go to the center of the center and make him our forever home. A lot of people skip in Christ, leaving Adam and entering into Christ, and they want Christ in them. So they talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they talk about the infilling of the Holy Spirit, but skip the first step, which is you must put off the old life. God cannot give new wine and stick it in an old bottle. First, that bottle must be made new. And for that to take place, you must repent. You must believe in Christ. You must fix yourself to the center. And when you do that, you have newness of life. This vessel is cleansed and is ready to become a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that's how we live. We are literally seated in heavenly places. When you enter into Christ, you know that you share in his work on the cross? I know, you're 2,000 years after the fact, but when he died on that cross, guess what? You died with him. What does Paul say? I am crucified with Christ. Paul, you didn't die up there. Yes, I did, by faith. When I entered into Christ by faith, I share in his work. And guess what? I'm buried with him. I was, I was buried into, baptized into his death, and therefore into his burial. And guess what? Into his resurrection. Therefore, when he burst forth in that grave, so did I. And when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, guess what? He took me with him. How do you expect to get there? You get there in Christ, not on your own merit, not on your own works of righteousness, but in his work. You believe in him and he takes you with him. And that's why in Ephesians it says we are seated together with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Whoa, how did you get there? All I did was trust him. All I did was believe in him. Isn't that amazing? He did all the work. Now, guess what? You're in the throne room of grace. He says, come on. Come on in boldly. Don't be sheepish. Don't be shy. You're in Christ. Therefore, come that you may obtain mercy and find grace, the power of God to live. Grace for help in time of need. You guys ever faced a time of need? Yeah. Guess what? You have access to grace now. Why? Because you're in Christ. If you live in Adam, staring at this house, staring at the place of the earthquake, going, oh, no, I don't want that, you don't have access to grace. But when you give up your Adam life, you enter into Christ, now you have access, unlimited access, to all the grace you need for every time of need you will ever face. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Continue you in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. You notice it never talks about visiting here. This is abiding language. So are you willing to give up that Adam position, enter into Christ, and abide? And when you do, he abides in you. What an amazing thought. This is truly what Hudson Taylor would call this the exchange life. You give up your life, and what do you receive? His life. Who's getting the raw end of the deal? Because some of us argue, it's like, well, he asks for too much. Well, what's he asking for, Eric? He asks for everything. I mean, come on, God. 
Ask for everything. Uh, wait a minute. What's he giving you? He's giving you his everything. My everything stinks next to his everything. He's asking for my stinky pile of everything in exchange for his eternal everything that is endless, inexhaustive. You can search the treasury of God's everything and never reach the end of it in all eternity. And I have my little piddly everything that I'm holding on to? Just wisdom, by the way, guys. Give up your everything. It's a worthwhile investment. The fourth earthquake of the gospel, the cross, the resurrection, the indwelling, the return of Christ. You see, this is what we understand as the good news. It's not just that we're here, left as orphans. No, we've been given the Holy Spirit as an earnest, as a deposit. For what? For his second coming. He's coming to get us, guys. Soon that, those heavens will break open and we will see him upon the clouds. Oh, haste the day that my faith will be made sight. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. That sounds a little like an earthquake, doesn't it? From east to west, making a very large valley, half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. So when he returns, even then, it's like, hey, guys, you might not want to miss this. This is big. Earthquake, 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 earthquake. Underline, exclamation mark, italics, bold, extra size font. Do you see it? Jesus is the center of the center. The center of the center. I just stole my thunder for that slide, didn't I? Boy, I could have just waited just a few more seconds. That would have sounded so much better. His name is Jesus. Built to deliver the word of truth um, perfectly. Have you ever felt this? It's like, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. We are not the best vehicle to deliver the truth. Have you ever had that thought? Angels would be so much more effective at this than we would be. How about this, though? If you want to beat it all, how about we just say, God, you come down in a cloud of glory and just shake the nations and boom out of heaven and say, if you don't repent right now, you're going to hell. As far as I'm concerned, that would work. How about he picks them all up by their foot, hangs them over hell, lets them hear the screams to say, in five seconds, I'm dropping. Your option is you can repent. I, hey, guys, don't you, if you're thinking along with me, I'm like, hey, that would work really well. Instead, he has chosen us. We are his chosen vehicle of revelation. He chose weak things, humble things, to reveal his majesty. He chose us. Now, I know that's a little confounding. And it's hard for us to grasp that the perfection of God, the majesty of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God is meant to be expressed and revealed through Characters that are very unlike that. In fact, that would be the description even in the Bible. We are not like him. We are unholy. He is holy. But he has chosen us to make us holy vessels. Now, we do not reveal his perfection immediately. And you could say, so how long does it take to reveal his perfection? I'm not exactly sure how long that takes because everyone that I've ever known, even that is being sanctified by God, is in an ever-increasing measure showing forth his, his life. But he is still perfect, though he is showing his perfection through very imperfect vessels. That's his choice, by the way. I didn't come up with that idea, and I doubt I would have. He came up with that. That is how he just chosen to reveal his glory. So I, I made this a, a couple years ago. I was in a, a restaurant. I want to say it was, uh, I was in a Jimmy John's. I was, believe it was a Jimmy John's in another state. And Jimmy John's had all these, like, statements on the wall, just all sorts of quotes and everything. 
And there was one, it was some study. I took a picture of it on my phone. I was so intrigued by it. And it had this, like, they, some neuroscientists were doing a study on the fact that the way our mind processes words, that you could put a whole paragraph together, and as long as the first and the last letter of a word are intact, you can scramble the other letters and actually read it. And so I, I read their crazy paragraph, and I'm thinking, what in the world? So here's what I did, because as far as I'm concerned, that's one of the most incredible pictures of what we're called to. If we fix the first and the last of that word, then we actually, though the middle is a little scrambled. <laughs> Don't take offense to that, guys. We're all a little scrambled. <laughs> that the clear, perfect message still somehow comes through. Okay? If you don't believe me, just, just listen to this. I scrambled some words for us. As humans, we don't appear to be the best carrying devices for the message of heaven, do we? Why doesn't God use angels instead? Or for that matter, why doesn't he just do it himself? Why doesn't he just come down in a cloud of glory and boom with a voice of thunder? But he has indeed chosen us in all our jumbled weakness to be his ideal communication vessels. That said, if he was going to use us, he must first establish two things in our life. First, a firm belief in the word of God in text. And second, a firm belief in the word of God made flesh and what that word of God in flesh did for us 2,000 years ago on that cross. When those two things are established, it's the equivalent of having the first letter and the last letter of every word in this paragraph fixed and established. The stuff in the middle is often jumbled, but the message will still perfectly get through the imperfect vessel. Isn't God amazing? Doesn't that blow you away just like it does me? I mean, I even put that together. And what's weird is I hadn't seen that for two years, and I could read it. That was proof to me. Because the first time I think, well, I just wrote it, so of course I can read it. Well, after two years, I had no idea what it said. I just sat down and read it. I was like, whoa. <laughs> I love how God works. As a church, there is something we need to fix to. There is a work that will continue. It's the jumbled, scrambled words in the middle. That they're accurate words even, uh, letters, uh, I should say. But as long as we get first things first and we get the center of the center, we can allow God to begin to unscramble the rest. But what I don't want as a church is for us to miss the center of the center. I don't want to miss Jesus and him crucified. There is a diabolical pull away from the center in our generation, just as in every generation, our generation, it is an intense movement today to make Christianity about something else other than what it's all about. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.